All right, Esther chapter 8. We're actually going to go into chapter 9 today, but we'll just read 8 together now. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was for her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own scripts, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on the swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, and with a great crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Good morning. Before I get started, I uh, wanted to introduce a new staff member. Actually, she's really not that new. She's been with us for a while. Jane has been our worship leader on a part-time basis for the past few years, and so we've decided as an elder board to hire her as a full-time worship and creative arts director. So if you would welcome Jane up, we'd like to pray for her. <laughs> Any last words? <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to let you all know how excited I am to be able to step into this new role, serving full-time and 
devoting more of my time and energy to developing the worship and creative arts ministry here and would really appreciate your continued prayers and support as this will be team effort <laughs> together. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks. Lord, thank you for Jane and her faithfulness in serving in this ministry and in our community. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon her. Would you give her big dreams and big vision as to how to reach out to our community, as to how we are going to evangelize and disciple those who come in our direction. God, thank you for her and bringing her to us, and we ask, God, that we are able to fully support her and what you've called her to, and we ask, Lord, that we would just be humble and obedient to whatever you call us to, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks. Oh, like a golf tournament. <laughs> oh, I'm going to pray for you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we look through this chapter and a half of Esther, we ask Holy Spirit for you to speak to us, that you would speak to us in ways that aren't even necessarily reflected in this story, but how you work so dynamically in each individual life here in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 7, we read of Haman's judgment from the king, but the Jews were still stuck in this dilemma of a decree that they couldn't reverse that the king issued, namely the genocide of the Jews. So in chapter 8, we see what happens to the Jews after Haman's death and how they will address this genocide that is approaching them. So let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So it's a clear sign of things changing for Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews. And from this point on, Mordecai had access to the king and to Esther that he never had. And all of this made possible because Mordecai gained the trust of the king. He saved the king from this assassination attempt from these two eunuchs that used to work for him. And he was the adoptive father of the queen. So Mordecai is now family. And this decree to kill the Jews is not just against the queen, but it's also a decree to wipe out part of his family. Now we see the seizure of Haman's property, that it was given to Esther by the king, and then Esther passed those assets on to Mordecai, and all of this is really great and all, but the decree for the destruction of the Jews still stands. So you have all of these assets from the one who conspired to kill you, but so what? You're still dead. What good were all of those assets if you're dead, and those whom you would pass on those assets to would die too? So the decree could not be reversed, and Haman's death, receiving all of his assets, the elevation of the status of Mordecai and Esther's family, all of it doesn't really mean anything if they would just be killed a few months later. What really mattered? Their salvation. And not just for herself, but for her families, her friends, all of those who needed it. See, our relationship with God is more than just salvation, though. Because with that relationship comes the knowledge and the embodiment of love, of justice, of joy, of peace. But how do we experience that eternally without salvation? 
See, salvation is a huge part of our relationship with Jesus. It's not all of it, but without it, all those other things are just kind of temporary. There's a thought coming from those who are just more justice-minded that we are to be exactly that, just to be justice-minded and justice-focused, and I actually agree. We need to be more justice-minded and justice-focused, but not at the neglect of the good news of salvation. We really need to get to the bottom of all these injustice issues, of all these inequity issues, and if we boiled it all down to what they all have in common, it's that we're all sinful. We all have sin, and we're all in need of a Savior to rescue us from sin. What good is anything without salvation of our souls? So Mark chapter 8, verses 36 through 38 reads, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And the gospel is not just head knowledge. It's not just knowing about salvation. We need to live that out. We need to work it out. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Continuing on in Esther, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman and the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And you notice Esther's demeanor change. Because prior to this, Esther was just this methodical, calculated, systematic strategist in her approach. She had the king ask her on three separate occasions, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. And there she appeared calm and collected to invite the king and to Haman and Haman to these two feasts. But here, she just lets her emotions out. She's not holding this back anymore. And you notice in verse 3, she doesn't say anything about the king giving the okay to this law. But she brings up the evil plan of Haman. And she asked the king to do something he couldn't do. He could not revoke the decree. No matter how much Esther pleased him, no matter how much favor she found in his sight, no matter how much right this would seem, no matter how pleasing she is to the king, he can't do it. It is against the law. And so Esther throws in these two rhetorical questions for the king in verse 6, which is similar to what Paul was thinking in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul Esther and Mordecai, they had a heart for others to be saved, for them to experience salvation. It wasn't just about them getting theirs. There are some people who are not concerned for others. 
that, you know, hey, I'm good. I got mine. My fire insurance, I'm covered. You know, like I'm good. And it's not so with Esther and Paul. They wanted others to have life. And they weren't passive about how others were going to be saved. They took action. So what are we doing? Do we have a heart for those who are perishing? Or are we just kind of content that, you know, I got mine and I'm good? Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king is essentially letting them know, I can't do anything more. That's all I can do. I seized Haman's property. I gave it to you. And I sentenced Haman to death, but for anything more, you guys are going to have to figure that out. You guys figure it out. And then when you do, I'll sign it. I'll sign this. And so Mordecai and his gang start working on an edict that will give them a chance for survival. But it wouldn't be one that would revoke the first one created by Haman. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. I read all of that because I want us to compare those verses to Esther chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Because this newer edict written by Mordecai was used to counter Haman's edict in Esther chapter 3. Let's read Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And notice the similarities. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So Mordecai's newer edict. It can't overturn the first edict. Well, let's fight against it then. We'll fight. And in both edicts, the king's scribes were summoned to write an edict to the king's satraps and governors 
and in their own language to all the provinces of the Persian Empire. They were both sealed with the king's signet ring. They were all sent by courier. Even the language written was really similar. Now look at Esther chapter 3 verse 13 with this instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now you look at Mordecai chapter 8 verses 11 through 12. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout the province of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So this is just direct counteraction to this edict from Haman. And this wasn't an act of revenge or to get the upper hand. It was to be able to defend oneself to the extent that one was threatened. They weren't the ones that were going to initiate that. And Mordecai was not looking to take advantage of this situation, which he probably could have gotten away with. But it was for the punishment to fit the crime. Now, back to comparing these edicts. You notice that both were issued in Susa, but there was a big difference, even though there are many similarities. It's the outcome of the edicts that were so different. In chapter 3, verse 15, we see that the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. But in chapter 8, verse 15, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So Mordecai, he just came out looking like prince. Right, who was just here a few weeks ago. But he came out looking like Prince, like he was all cool and stuff. So different from chapter 3 and then chapter 4. Right, chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So he went from like this Mad Max character in sackcloth in ashes to like Prince. Like he's Prince. In Esther, chapter 4, verse 2. Mordecai was denied entrance into the king's gate, and he was clothed in sackcloth. But in Esther chapter 8, verse 15, he's not only inside the king's gate, he's in the palace. And he's clothed in royal robes of blue and white with this golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. In Esther chapter 4, verse 3, there was this great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. But at the end of chapter 8, verses 16 and 17... The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, when we're looking at this, who would we attribute this salvation, this rescue to? Was it King Ahasuerus? Was it Mordecai? Was it Esther? Was it the Jews themselves? No. It was God. And so it is with our own lives who can deliver, who can rescue, who can save us from our own sins, which is a death sentence to us all. The wages of sin is death. And for that salvation, we are in need of Jesus. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 is what Jesus quoted about himself in Luke chapter 4. And this is what it reads in Isaiah. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God is not mentioned in Esther, much like in our world today, not acknowledging Jesus as Lord. But that doesn't mean that he's not at work. And just as God was at work in the days of Esther, he is still at work in our day. Some of the indicators of Jesus at work is that he gives a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, that there is gladness and joy among his followers. Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For those of us who identify ourselves as Christian, is gladness, is joy present in our lives, in our being? despite the circumstances and the conditions that we find ourselves in. And it's not to say that what we go through doesn't matter or we're just kind of brushing it under the rug. The pain, the loss, the hurt, the tears, the sadness, all of those things are very real. But for the Christian, we must ask ourselves, where is God in all of that? Where is he in that? He's still present in your life just as he was in the lives of those in Esther's day who feared for their lives because there was a decree issued to wipe out all the Jews. And through whatever life throws at us, is there still a gladness? Is there still a joy in us that is just simply unexplainable? It's just present. An evidence that the presence of God is in your life. And it's not that we deserve royal robes over sackcloth. It's not that we deserve crowns over ashes or gladness over mourning. It's just simply that's who God is. That's who he is. He's good. He's gracious. And he makes that available to us no matter how undeserving we are. Esther chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who had hated them. And so the tide changes on a very specific day, on the day that both edicts were written. And what day is this? You look back to Esther chapter 3, verse 7. At the day that Haman and his gang chose for this genocide, and they were in the Jewish empire, and it reads this in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So these guys were very superstitious. And so they cast lots for a year, thinking that there's one day that's going to be better than another day to wipe out all the Jews. But the day that they thought was their lucky day turned out to be a very terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> Just was very bad. Verse 2. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout the province, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So what a turn of events. This guy was going to be hanged on the gallows in front of Haman's house, and Mordecai is now the guy sitting at the king's gate. He's a very powerful man. It's just an extreme reversal. That's what God does. That's who God is. He is a God of reversals. You and I are sentenced to death because of our sin, and he says, no, I send Jesus. He can reverse all of that. And the Jews didn't think that there was a way out. They didn't know until that very day. Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshish, I love these names, Shandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha, and this is why Pastor Steve skipped chapter 9, and Adalia and Aradatha and, and all those guys, okay? That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16 has something important to keep in mind about this second day of fighting. It says, they gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. They weren't out killing for the sake of killing, just to like kill everybody. They were fighting for their lives. They were fighting to defend their lives, defending themselves. They were not the aggressors. And war is just an awfully disturbing, horrific event. And even though this time of war is horrific, we see that the Jews do exercise restraint. You'll notice the phrase of restraint repeated in verses 10, 15, and 16. It reads this, But they laid no hand on the plunder. They could have. The edict allowed it. Now, why didn't they? Well, for one, that's not why they were fighting. They weren't fighting to get more material resources or to get rich off of it or to steal people's things. They fought to defend themselves. And secondly, you recall that Haman was an Agagite, right? King Agag ruled the Amalekites. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we've gone through this already, Saul was instructed to completely destroy everything that the Amalekites had. But King Saul was disobedient and he didn't destroy everything and he actually keeps their best stuff. So he does plunder them and he keeps their best stuff. Esther knows this. She's not going to play this. She had learned from King Saul's mistake. She's now queen. I am not going to do that. I am going to make this right. And my people are here to defend themselves, but they're not taking any plunder. That is not why we're doing what we're doing. 
And the reason the Jews fought was for their lives. It wasn't to get rich. It was for self-defense, not for material wealth. And they fought for reasons that were defensible. It was for their lives. It's not for profit. And she was going to be obedient to carry out what King Saul should have carried out in 1 Samuel 15. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So they celebrated their lives. They didn't revel in the victory over their enemies and killing their enemies. They were just glad to be alive, and they didn't keep any of the plunder. God came through. He delivered them from death. And Anyone here just in a predicament? You're just caught in a tough place. Probably not to this extent, but you really do need God to come through for you. Let me just close with this psalm. Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Next week is the week that we're going to go over Purim, and that's why we kind of rushed through this so we can catch up and finish chapter 9, because Purim is, I believe, Wednesday and Thursday, and we'll talk about Purim the Sunday before that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask your blessing upon Sylvia's ministry at InterVarsity. We ask your blessing upon Jane joining us here as a full-time worship director, creative arts director. We ask, God, that we would keep our eyes on you, that we realize, God, that salvation comes from you. We need you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is in a tough predicament and is in need of that encouragement from you. May they sense your presence. May you speak to them and give them a sense of peace and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.